Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 261st episode financial advisor success podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Andrew Miller. Andrew is the founder of Olio Financial, a financial planning firm based out of McLean, Virginia, that manages $275 million for over 275 households. What's unique about Andrew, though, is how he's been able to craft a scalable business model based on complexity fees by meticulously capturing the details of every planning analysis he's done for his clients over the years and translating it into a clear estimate of the time and effort it'll take to handle any new client's planning needs. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Andrew developed his time-based system to determine how to price his services to clients. Why Andrew's focus on time has led the firm to do less and less investment work for clients and more and more for clients' other financial planning needs. Because as Andrew notes, if your technology stack is good enough, it really does take about the same amount of time to rebalance a $100,000 account as it does a $9 million account. And the financial planning proposal process that Andrew has created to help translate the value of his time into dollars that make his fee worthwhile to the clients he serves. We also talk about how financial advice given to Andrew developed a skepticism of the financial industry and ultimately helped shape his career in Olio's financial planning process. How Andrew's experience as a civil engineer fostered an understanding of how time and productivity are so intertwined, which helped him create the tools that are applied to Olio's fee structure. And how Andrew is positioning himself and the firm to be successful as technology encroaches ever further into the realm of financial planning. And be certain to listen to the end, where Andrew describes how his own financial planning philosophy and money scripts began at an early age, how fostering the education of resident advisors means so much to him and his vision of the future of the financial planning industry, and how despite being told by other advisors that his business model would never work, that it's been his willingness to create his own definition of success that's allowed him to achieve it. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Andrew Miller. Welcome, Andrew Miller, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I'm really looking forward to the the discussion today, and and I think talking a bit about the ongoing evolution of just the the advisor business model and and fee models. You know, there there was all this discussion, I think, ten years ago when Robo Advisors came out, and and it sort of tried to set this new fee benchmark of saying, you know, the 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 new 1% fee is 0.25% because that was where Betterment and Wealthfront and some of the others drew the line in the sand. And it and it it sort of set off this this chain of events where everybody suddenly said, oh, well, if advisory fees could fall that quickly, like fee compression is coming, we're all doomed. And if it falls that far that quickly, then basically we're just all going to zero and and it's this like matter of time before the AOM model just vanishes. And and in practice, that really hasn't happened, right? Robo advisors did not take over the world. If you actually look at just the advisory fees and, and revenue yield of advisory firms over the past ten years, it, it basically didn't really move a basis point. Literally, didn't didn't move a basis point of, of average revenue yield for for almost ten years. The, the kind of the vaunted fee compression didn't really come that way. But you know, as as I've looked at, it, I've always thought that the the way this really likely plays out is is not some robo advisor comes along and just keeps doing it for for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper 
because there's still value to the rest of the advice, clients seem quite willing and maybe even increasingly willing to pay for the advice. And that the, to me, the, the greatest threat to the AO model has always been the advisor who simply comes along and says, look, I'm just going to charge you this planning and advice fee. And I don't really care how much in assets you bring. Like you can not bring assets or you can bring assets. Maybe, you know, we'll charge you a little bit more if we just have to literally do the work to you know, hit the rebalance button for you. But our, our fees are just going to be set based on the services we offer. And, and, and it becomes us internally in the industry that actually become the challengers to the AUM model. And so I, I, I know you are now building a firm this way where you're living in a flat fee model, building off of complexity fees, starting to go down this path and differentiating yourself on that fee model. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited to have the conversation with you as someone who's living this evolution of fee models and holding it out to clients and trying to grow that way. To understand, like, what are you charging? What are you seeing as fee models in the future? And, and how is that working in practice for you? You know, you, you never know a person until you pull back the layers to see where they've been. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to be a good financial planner from an experience that I personally had. But a big part of the fee was my own experience as a civil engineer. It wasn't necessarily looking at the industry and saying, oh, this is terrible. I knew I wanted to be, this is the service. This is what you pay for it. I wanted to substantiate that. But it was really that experience that kind of triggered me to think, well, how would I bill a client for, you know, advice? And in civil engineering, everything had a process from proposal to submittal, including the color of pen you use. If it wasn't red, you get to redo it. And so I basically took that methodology and thought, well, let's apply this. And it was basically time tracking within 15-minute increments. It was a real headache and pain in the butt. But it was data. And, you know, the firm was billing off of it. And so when I got in into it, I had already kind of had this preconceived notion that this is what I wanted to do. But I had no real concept of what the industry was, how it was billing other than the experience that I had with a financial advisor. And so I, you know, I was assuming that my experience, that was the way financial advisors build their fees. And I wanted to, you know, provide an alternative to it. So what was the advisor experience you had that was so, so formative for you? Well, I think it's like one of our biggest challenges now. It's, what most people experience without really knowing. And that is, you don't pay me. And it was, you know, a a conversation. We recommend selling this fund, buying this fund. You know, I had 3000 bucks in my 401k. So, you know, it wasn't like a complete rebalancing. It was basically this fund will work. And there's contingent deferred sales charges. There's front end loads. And I was just generally interested in engineering everything. There's theory and this is the answer whereas the market money you know it's very subjective it's very emotional and so i thought well let me take a look at it i'll get back to you and it was kind of daunting because it was like i knew at that point i shouldn't have said it but i said it and i said i'll get back to you i want to look at your recommendations and what i found was a minor deviation from american funds growth stock of america to american funds basically large cap growth to large cap value. And that's not really how it was presented. And that kind of triggered 
this skepticism, if you will, and then 19 other colleagues, I'm thinking, you know, they probably made the decision only to find out that they did. And so that kind of pushed me into this, like, I want to do something different than what this experience was for me and what it was for the others. So basically, you you were getting pitched to like, swap from American funds, large cap growth to American funds, large cap value, you know, generate a new commission for the advisor and incur a new B share surrender schedule, contingent divert sales charge on it, and then realize like, you're you're swapping me out to a mutual fund that is not actually really all that different <laughs> at the end of the day. I don't want to have the whole benefits of large cap both versus large cap value conversation, but like sounds like not not that different relative to what you thought you were getting as recommendations without overhauling your portfolio. Yeah, the presentation is concern about the market. If you're concerned about the market, sure you can go to value or you can go to growth, but that's that's not really moving the needle, if you will, on, you know, the whole premise of how, how it was presented. So I, I guess, so help me understand this a little more. On the one hand, you're, you're like, okay, I'm not so thrilled about the, the service and the experience I had. I'm, I'm now a little more skeptical about financial advisors, but you didn't come out of that saying like, therefore I'm, you know, I'm going to get savvy on my personal finances. So I never have to talk to one of those people again. You came out and said, then I'm going to be a financial advisor you know, do, do it differently myself. So I, it just helped me understand that, that journey or that shift. So the shift was immediate. I didn't really know how to articulate it. I think there was a time when I thought investing could mean I'm going back to school, I'm going to study finance, and I'm going to go convince farmers to sell land for building development and selling those houses to consumers. And so I didn't really know what it was. I just knew it was a form of investing. And so as I started going down the path, which was the new path, the new career, this is what I'm doing. I quickly realized that it wasn't the advisor that I was working with and the shenanigans I experienced. This was a major industry problem. And I just wanted to see what could be done about it just out of pure curiosity. Then I get into the industry. I go back to school. I'm studying Virginia Tech. I thought, well, I've got to leave civil engineering to get some experience to know what the heck it is that I'm really going to be doing as a practical matter. And the stories just started from there. I mean, there's a life insurance agent that, long story short, I'm taking the CFP exam. He's taking the exam. He's like, what are you doing here? I mean, it was just like, he was really upset that I was there. And I, I'm sure some of it was youth. but we go to the exam. He says, are you ready to fail? And I, you know, was like, I sure hope not. You know, the past six months has. has Why was he so negative on you being there? Well, I think some of it was, there was a group of students who, you know, from Virginia tech. So there's kind of a, a gathering of people that he wasn't included in and they're young and kind of starting to push into his space. He's been taking this exam at this point. It was the fifth time. And oh, I think well, so that wasn't a like, he wasn't saying, are you ready to fail to be like negative or mean to you? He's saying, are you ready to fail because he'd been through it four times and failed? Yeah. I mean, again, okay. you, you got to pull back the layers to see where someone's, you know, went before you under, really mm -hmm. understand them. And I take the exam and then this same guy, literally no joke, failed again. 
And at some point it's like, when is it just not in the cards? And the story is he's ran into in Best Buy and the conversation is, say, how did you do? How did you do on the exam? And he pulls out his large Mercedes key fob and said, says, do you know what my W2 was last year? And it's like, what relevance does this really have to (laughs) passing the exam? So that was one. I overheard a colleague at a conference offer to do, you know, her a favor. And the response was, of course, I'll do it. I know you're going to bring on a hundred million. So of course, I don't mind. You know, I'm sitting at a conference a few years later and the guy's telling his fellow neighbor working with clients was like catching fish out of a barrel. So easy and little work. And I could go on and on and on about this, but Michael, this is why I'm doing it. Reinventing the financial advice industry is a pretty ambitious task. I mean, when I was in my twenties, that's essentially the frame that I had. Right. But as you get into it, you're like, whoa, this is a monster. You know, you're, this is going to take multiple, multiple lifetimes and a whole lot of influence, which, you know, if you're busy doing really good work for clients, you don't have that kind of time. But, you know, it was a lot of sales tactics, over-promising, under-delivering, hidden fees. And of course, to that same industry, we know now that we're fishing in the ocean, not the barrel. It's not based on products. It's not based on AUM. Those models obviously have worked in the past. It's just not the approach that I took. I felt, you know, if, if your technology stack is good enough, it doesn't take any more time to manage $9 million versus 100000 And I think that's potentially where a lot of the, the problem lies. I mean, how many people have a CRM that has the social security number, the address, maybe a picture, but it, its capabilities fully unused. So then help us understand a little bit more, like, what is this fee model? How does it work when clients want to work with the firm? So there was a software that I used in engineering, if that's what you want to call it, where you put your time in in increments of 15 minutes, and we had to do it, and no one wanted to do it, including me. And as I got into the industry, I thought, geez, if if I'm going to do this, I have to, I'm going to have to keep using it. And so, of course, I didn't have the software. I just used Excel. And that was the point. Everything that I did from conversations to a retirement analysis to insurance review, it was documented. How much time did it take? And over, you know, two years, five years, 12 years, 15, you know, it was sorted by category. It was sorted by subcategory, time. And then, you know, there's basically the end result is if it took you this much time, how much are you going to bill? So it's very much the, you know, you just apply an hourly rate to it. But there's so much data that went into it. It just eventually became this, okay, check the box. This is the scope. The client needs this, not that. And it spits out and says, this is what the fee is. And so So, the premise of that then was just, this is the answer. This is how much it costs. Then it was a lot of comparing to the industry from, you know, commission-based, fee and commission, fee only, to really see, is this substantiated? Is this something that would actually work? Or am I just spending a lot of wasted time? Because it was unproven, of course. So were you like charging like charging straight hourly fees initially as you were doing this and tracking your time and then evolved to a point of saying... Okay, well, I pretty much know how much time this takes me every time I get a client that asks this. So I'm just going to set it as a project fee up front because I know since I've now done it so many times. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's really, for me, in the beginning, when I started the firm, it's a question of it's going to work or it's not. And I very much felt, I just want to help. And how can I help? 
And if it's just investments, okay. If it's just estate planning, okay. If it's just retirement, fine. So it felt a little more hourly-like or project-based or limited scope. But the intent was, this is what it costs to get you where you need to be. And that's $4,000, $1,000 a quarter or whatever. And there was pushback because, you know, as I'd mentioned, it's really easy to say your fees 1% of what we're managing versus $4,000 or $5,000 or $20,000, whatever the case may be. And so there was a lot of pushback. So I am a big believer in reflection and taking what you know and saying, okay, what do we need to do to deviate? And I lost my dad to brain cancer. And I would say one of my biggest professional catastrophes was, hey, dad, no problem. When I get to, you know, when I get to town, we'll do your estate plan and get you on track and so forth. And of course, it's very much a father-son relationship. So it's like, well, no, I'm your dad. I still, <laughs> I still know financial decision-making better than you, even though you've mm-hmm. saturated yourself into this for the last decade. Uh-huh. And that was the moment that I thought, you don't always have tomorrow. So prospect client, no. You need estate planning, you need it bad. And if you don't want it, it's all or nothing. Because then that's where I lose sleep or I start to question what I'm doing. And so it eventually now has evolved to this is the scope, this is how we help, this is the fee to do it. And we're not going to start nickel and diming and saying, well, we just really want the retirement and the investments. Is that okay? Yes, there are plenty of firms that will do that for you, but not Olio. So the essence of it for you guys, it it sounds like is... We do comprehensive planning. We're going to have a list of stuff that you need, right, just based on your situation. So maybe you do have some portfolios to manage. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've got estate planning needs. Maybe you actually have that sorted out. Maybe you've got some insurance stuff to look at. Maybe there's some tax planning. You're going to end out with a list of stuff to do because you have time-tracked so many clients and how long it takes you to do that. You actually have a really tight estimate of how long it's going to take you to do that. And so... Every client gets some flat fee quote nominally based on the time that you're estimating it's going to take. But from their end, it's just, we're going to give you these services. You've got these factors, which you know impacts how long it's going to take. You need these services. There's certain factors. Here's your all-in fee for us to do all this stuff. Yeah. Like, do you equate that back to an hourly rate when you're trying to set fees? I mean, from your end, does it still come down to... Well, I've estimated this is going to take about 22 hours to work with the client, and we bill the equivalent of $300 an hour, so I'm going to give them a $6,600 quote. Like, does it, it, does it boil down that way to you, where it, you're, you're ultimately making everything a, a time-based hourly fee? You're just really good at estimating what the time is going to be because you spent so many years documenting what the time is? Yeah, the only hourly input is the time tracking. It's not hourly work. I've done very few hourly plans or hourly based engagement agreements. It's predominantly been this is where you are, this is how we can help, and this is the fee to pay to get there. Understood. But just when you have to decide whether my fee is three grand or five grand or 10 grand, how do you figure that out? It's basically a service matrix from buying a mattress to investing a portfolio to doing a retirement analysis, a pension, you know, should you. Take the single life or the, you know, joint and last survivor. How much is it going to take to review your auto insurance, your homeowner's insurance, your umbrella, if you even have one? How do you figure out what to charge for each of those? It's just time tracking and saying, okay, this is what we need the firm based on the resources. This is what we need the, this is really what it's going to take for it to make sense to do this work to where it's not just, you know, 
we can pay good talent. We can have, you know, a, an office over our head to bill. And so that's basically the time and then the resources to make it all happen. And then presumably you can back into the profit margin or, the, you know, whatever the net needs to be through that. But when you add it over many, many relationships, it's beyond, you know, 10, 15, 20 clients becomes more difficult. But it's basically a service matrix that is, yes, just, they need it. No, they don't. Well, yeah, from their end, but just I'm still trying to stand from your end. Like you do the math. The service matrix says it will take 22 hours. How do you know what to charge me? I have time per team member. So and it's always, so it's, it's not even, it might not even just be, it's going to take 22 hours to do this work. You're actually all the way down to like, it's going to take six hours of your time and 16 hours of other team members' time. And your time is X dollars an hour. And the team member time is Y dollars an hour, which is lower because they're not the lead. And, and you, you go all the way down to that level and figuring out how to do an individual fee. Yes. It's scheduling the meeting emails back and forth or scheduling software. It's meeting prep. It's sending, preparing the agenda, sending it anything that you want to add or take off or prioritize. It's, you know, the, the actual meeting itself, the follow-up. So each of the pieces that are a part of the planning, there's the time to do it. And then there's the person doing it that has a different rate than I have or someone else on the team. That's exactly what we're doing. And, and then each person's time, their hourly rate, you create as some function of what what do I what do I need to compensate them? What do I need to cover my overhead? What do I need to, you know, build build in a a profit margin for the firms so that we're doing this profitably as a business and and it kind of grosses up to get to a a particular hourly rate for each team member. Right. Yeah. From payroll tax to health insurance to 401k to, you know, you name it. This fundamentally is what we believe we need to provide to have talented people serving our clients. And this is what, you know, benchmark studies and salary surveys are saying. And so then we just start backing in to that number. As an example, you know, 50% or $50 an hour for client success, paperwork, scheduling, then you move to associate level or resident, you know, what is their time? Maybe it's 75, then you have a a financial planner is a hundred and then the lead planner is 150. And is that actually just the neighborhood of the rates that you guys end out billing just as you, as you actually create this and put all of it together? No, the differences are a little bit bigger. I think it's 200, 150. Okay. And I'm trying to decide, do we peel that back more? But then you end up in this, you know, it's just like every variable. It doesn't need to be that precise if it's working. I just want it to be substantiated. And basically meeting with a client and saying, this is the fee. I want to tell you exactly in dollar terms what that fee is you're paying. And if we can't put the fee back in your pocket, pay our team, then we'll just say, keep doing what you're doing or narrow the scope at worst and say, okay, they really don't need a full-fledged auto homeowners and umbrella review. Like it's good. You know, I mean, there's never a client that you can't share something with that would benefit them, but it doesn't mean you're full-fledged like, hey, you're going to pay $1,000 a quarter, 3000 a quarter for this resource. So so I'm struck that at its core, I guess it it, it is kind of a, a time-based project fee is sort of how you end up quoting clients, except 
I guess I, I dare say like a, a lot of advisors that try to do that are still sort of roughly estimating what they think the scope is going to be and how long it's going to take. Whereas you have created like a meticulous <laughs> spreadsheet model, having detailed time spent for years and years and years and have a arguably, I suspect a much, much better understanding of exactly how much time it takes across the team to actually figure out how to, uh, what precisely what the fee should be for any particular clients in any particular service. Yeah, it, 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 it is detailed. To me in financial planning, the easiest expense to, to project or sustain is a fixed expense. And so, you know, while the earth isn't flat, I felt, well, fees can be. And I kind of started with this and just really wanted to do it. And it, like anything, as a one of the best financial planning databases in terms of knowledge, you have added to that over time significantly, right? And so that's essentially how this is happening, where, you know, you do an investment portfolio, you do a retirement analysis, you do education plan, all the way to the point I'm having this conversation with a client who was the most wonderful human being I've ever met, the sweetest lady. It was the ideal relationship. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just need you to do it. And she calls me one day and says, Andrew, I need $10,000 in my bank account. And she was furious. I have never heard her this way. And I just thought, oh my gosh, like I just couldn't get over it. It was that, you know, that different. And so I said, what's going on? So I instigated a bit, you know, I was nosy, if you will. And she said, I have to buy a mattress. And I said, oh, okay. And I'm thinking in my head, like 10 grand, whoa, like this thing. It's a sweet mattress. Yeah, what's it doing for you? But then I thought, well, tell me about how did you determine the $10,000? I have no idea. I've never managed a checkbook. I've never seen an account statement. Of course, her husband did all these things for her. Mm. And so I'm looking at this as this is a basic fundamental decision of making a purchase and using dollars to do it. And she was completely overwhelmed, had no idea where to start, basically in tears. And so I said, don't worry. I sent her three mattress stores in her area, which was in Florida. And I said, go to all three. There's some brand overlap. And if a salesman says, ma'am, I'm sorry, you've been laying on this mattress too long. We've got other customers, get up and don't buy there. And I said, once you do that, give me a call and let me know. I want three mattresses from low end, mid range and high end. And the high end actually was closer to that $10,000 number, believe it or not. But I said, well, which one? And it was like 500, 600 bucks, 2000. And I think it was like, I don't know, 6,000. And I said, which one did you decide was best? And she said, the $2,000 one. And I said, tell me more about that. And she said, well, it was in the middle. It was comfortable. I felt, you know, it's not the cheapest, not the highest. I'm thinking this is this Please. is the fundamental reason what you know why this is not just about you know dollars it's about the behavioral aspect mm -hmm. but my point is we go through this exercise this is what was important for her she's paying a fee and she could care less about standard deviation tax loss harvesting you know sustainable you know withdrawal rates she just needed to buy a mattress and that's what we delivered and I tracked my time the whole time cuz I mean Little did I know I'd be getting in the business of helping someone shop for a mattress. But that's just another scenario that's one off that just as you build your content out, we're doing the same thing. And the more you do it, you know, the more data you have, the more, you know, refinement. So, you know, maybe that took a little bit longer because I'm just still figuring out, you know, where are there three mattress stores in yeah. Florida that, you know, so 
then that just starts to build on itself and get more refined. You know, you're going to have that conversation. You know what the result is going to be when she comes back and the transferring of the money. So, I mean, it's not down to the step of hitting submit, you know, on the money movement, but it gives us context into what it takes to help someone buy a mattress. But help me understand in that regard. I mean, I'm presuming when a client comes in and just like you start the conversation of giving them financial planning advice that like the prospect process isn't literally getting down to, do you think you might need help buying a mattress? Because if so, we need to add that into the quote for your financial planning fee. When you're doing all of this, like these time-based project fees or, or sort of complexity fees that are built off of time, how do you handle these situations where you, know, you, you didn't know when you started with her at the beginning of the year, you were going to have a mattress project? <laughs> so yeah. like, do you, do you build buffer into the fee? Is this uh, like, I'm envisioning this sort of like the engineering contracting world, like, oh, you want to put in a change order on your project scope? Like, sure, you know, we can do that thing for you. Here's the additional fee that it will cost you for the additional time. What we do do is have conversations in those early meetings that we can narrow in on a scope that says, this is what we're going to need to do for this client. And I'm not really in the business of doing limited scope. Here's your plan. I give it to you. It's worth no more than the paper it's on and it never gets implemented. I'm looking for long-term, mutually rewarding, you accomplish a goal, we celebrate together type of relationships. And so it's our job as financial planners to know the client, know their needs, know the scope, and then base the fee. I am pleased to report, I do not hit a stopwatch when a client calls and say, I'm sorry, this was out of scope. You know, we've got to, we've got to bill you some extra money. But what it is, is throughout the conversation, if the client is asking more questions than what we had allowed, allocated in for retirement planning, or they're just detail oriented and they want to ask a lot of questions, then as we review the scope, which is typically annually, and we're not necessarily amending the agreement annually, but if we find that we're spending a lot more time either in different areas of planning or within one area, then we add that time back in at that time. So we are reviewing the scope periodically enough to where, you know, it's just taking more time to answer these questions. And they're good questions. We don't want to discourage you from answering them, but we've got a bill for it. So I'm just wondering, because I'm, I'm guessing you may track this, like how often are your time projections off? I guess either, either to the high side or the, or the low side. How much variability is there relative to your projections? Does it average out pretty well over time? Or are you still finding just clients have uncertain situations and life happens and like fees have to be adjusted fairly regularly because just life happens and scopes change? The biggest scope changes from year one to year two and beyond. The first year is for us more education. It's, you know, understanding what is it that, that we're doing for you. It's getting to know their situation, right. really trying to figure out the inner why. If we can figure out the inner why, we know we can get them there because they'll be motivated to do it. So there's a lot of conversations in year one. We build the plan, we implement the plan, then we move to more rowing phase where we're, you know, making sure that if the rapids on the left are worse than the right, then we go right. But that's really the biggest difference because the conversations shift more back office team oriented versus client meeting, meeting prep. I mean, we still have meetings with clients, but it's not topic based or a few topics at a time where there might be, you know, four meetings in a, over the course of the year to implement the plan. We're not analyzing insurance at the same level, auto, home, umbrella, life, disability. We've already gotten the plan in place 
by year two. And, you know, we're periodically reviewing declaration statements to make sure that insurance company isn't hosing the client. But the estate plan is already implemented. The trust is funded, assuming there is one. And so we've done a lot of the legwork to get it in place. Now we're just monitoring and maintaining. That's that's where the biggest break is. So there's typically year one fee and year two and beyond. And then there's periodic scope changes, change of employment, transition from working life to retirement life. I've blown, I have absolutely blown a few fees for sure, where it's just like we have lost so much money. And, you know, it's a learning experience. It's data. You know, when I was building all this out, it would literally be, I would, if the spreadsheet was available, I would, I had it. If it wasn't, it's on a piece, it's a post-it note, two hours mattress lady. And I, you know, would pop it in. But now we've got a lot more data. We're really not tracking time as much now, though. I think, you know, as we evolve, we're going to have to start looking at that. Because I started tracking as, you know, an entry level, I'm scanning paperwork, now giving advice and reviewing meeting notes, making sure that the meeting is ready and then doing the meeting. But what it takes me may take someone different. So I think that there's got to be some spot checks, but that's typically it's either completely boshed. There have been a few times where the scope changed and we never billed for it or the scope changed. It was it was less than what it should have been or the the time spent, the service was less. And so typically we make that adjustment on on the the rowing phase or the ongoing phase agreement. And it might be that that's, you know, a year. And then we we revert back to, okay this is the actual ongoing fee because the client is now whole on what they overpaid, essentially. And we've we've cut checks before, although it's it's rare that it's that off that we're, you know, having to send. I'm sorry, we overbilled you $4,000. Here's here's a check. So how put this in context for us is what is a typical fee for a client in practice in this model? Like how just what does this add up to? Pretty, if you were to do the AUM equivalent, it, it's right at 0.75% of AUM. We've got portfolios from $50,000 to portfolios of, you know, $15 million. And so it, the law of large numbers, it has taken a lot of time, but it is, it is an approach that is working. It, is, it feels more normalized and that we've got enough data where we know the core areas. We're going to talk about cash management. We're going to talk about retirement, insurance. What are your risks? You know, maybe education planning. And it's really once we start building off of that as more satellite, if you will, we're buying a mattress, we're buying our first home, or we're buying our you know retirement home or stock option analysis. That's really where we'll start to see some deviation. But the core fundamental planning piece is there's a lot more data there than, say, the mattress story. Sorry, and how many clients is it in total? We've got about 275 to 295 clients over 27 states, some of which are 401k plan participants. So, you know, our goal is to service about 50 clients, full-fledged financial planning per advisor. So. And I think you'd said like you don't charge fees as a percentage of assets, but if if you if you did relative to your assets, it comes out around the seventy five basis point fee. So just if I'm doing math right, like approximately seven two hundred seventy five million of assets, approximately two hundred seventy five clients to make the math easy is is average client has about a million dollars. If if the 
flat fee ends out being about the equivalent of 75 basis points. Like the average client ends out with a $7,500 flat fee for per year with variability around that based on their complexity. Like, is that about where it adds up for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's over the entire client base. I mean, if if we've got a client, they're in their mid 30s, young professional, you know, we might only have, you know, $50,000 of money that we're managing, but they've got the money to pay the fee. And we can substantiate it enough to say, hey, this, you know, we want to put this back in your pocket through the advice. Their AUM fee, you know, could be 4%, but, you know, they're in a different position. Conversely, someone at, you know, 5 million, 6 million, 10 million of assets under management, their fee is probably going to be lower and potentially even closer to the, you know, if you think of the vanguards, the betterments, the wealth fronts on an asset base level, it's probably in that range. So it very much, depends on the scope. But yes, if you take it over a whole, that's correct. Average client is around 900,000, 950 in assets under management. So then help me understand just how are you presenting these fees to clients? Just like that's, you know, $7,000, $7,500 planning fee. And if that's an average, obviously some are lower, but that means some are higher. So you, you're, I'm presuming you have clients in there who are, are 10 plus thousand dollar flat fees, which just that's not a trivial number for quoting someone a flat fee. So how do you like how do you present this to clients? I mean, you had mentioned you were sort of tying this back to your days of of civil engineering where you you put together these these project proposal scopes. Is is that literally how you do it with clients? Like a a scope proposal with a here's all the things we're going to do for you and here's the the fee that it adds up to in the end? We don't, although we have a presentable matrix that, you know, if a client, I've used it a few times where it's like, well, what are we getting from this? And you break it down, you know, setting up accounts, insurance review for whatever it may be, education funding analysis for your kids, like it's there, but it's not presented. The only thing that's really presented is the is the fee itself and how we're substantiating it. And if we can't put the money back in their pocket, then we're just going to say that. We can't like keep doing what you're doing. Call us. We are here. If this happens, this I am anticipating this could happen in four years. Call us. But a big part of that is, you know, if you think of our relationship, if you think of the plan and say, okay, well, what would be the equivalent of paying this fee today? Michael, I can put $100,000 in your pocket today if you pay this $10,000 fee. But recognizing that if we're just doing the plan and turning it over to you, this thing's got to be implemented. Like you can't just say because you've got a plan, you've got these dollars in your pocket. So then we move more towards the, well, we know the things that have to be done. We can't do Roth conversions for the next four years because your tax bracket's so high. But you're about to retire and we're going to have from 58 to 67, potentially 70 to do these things. So what are we really basing the value on and the tax savings of doing some of these different strategies? And what would be the equivalent per year? So let's say the fee is 10, but the value is 20,000. So there's net 10,000 in your pocket. The future value conversation I've always found clients just, the numbers are usually too big if it's a younger client. I mean, if it's a client that's you know, 95, yes, maybe it's like, oh, okay, well, that seems reasonable. But if you say the benefit of working together and implementing this plan is worth $2 million, like it just doesn't come on, like how many things are going to change? How many, you know, the scope is going to change, the goals are going to change. You know, we know the financial plan is virtually wrong the day we do it. It's just basically a guide and we know what we need to do for you. 
it could be tax law legislation, it could be federal reserve policy or, you know, whatever the case may be. So that that's something I try to stay away from because it's just almost incomprehensible for most clients. Understood. But but then just so that bring me back to it again, though. So like, how, how are you presenting and communicating the the value to, to justify a 75 plus hundred dollar fee? Just how does that get presented? We break it down by the scope and refinancing could be an example or, you know, insurance policies are somewhat tricky. Like if there's an obvious, like you've got a whole life insurance policy of $100,000, it's costing you $2,000 a year. You know, maybe you need a million dollars of life insurance that we could get. So, so those are a little bit more tricky, but there are, you know, virtually we're trying to substantiate each area that we're helping retirement planning. Should I do Roth? Should I do pre-tax investing? We're looking at a screen of fund cost or asset based fee or commissions, you know, and, and speaking of that is one of the more challenging conversations in a prospect meeting is, whoa, I'm paying you $7,500. I don't pay my advisor. And so part of the first two meetings, that's what we're analyzing so that we know exactly when would we be looking at Roth conversions? When would be, or would we at all? How should you fund retirement? Is it pre-tax? Is it Roth? What are the costs of your underlying investments? You know, do you have insurance policies that you don't need, or you've got massive holes in your coverage and no disability? Like, yes, now we're starting to add money back in. There's a premium that you're going to have to pay. And if you're like me and any other client, you're not going to die. You're not going to be disabled. Like, we have to factor that in in these conversations. But at the end of the day, I want to say, based on what we know, based on the assumptions that we have here, and we go through those, and the goals that you have, we want to put conservatively $10,000 in your pocket net of the $5,000 fee you're paying us. And then we're reviewing that. And the fees price for impact, we want to be held accountable to that. And if the scope changes, the fee changes. But that's essentially how we're approaching it. So you may come all the way down, like we we see a refinancing opportunity, you'll save $175 a month. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll put that in there. You know, we, we see an opportunity to change the deductibles on your insurance, you're going to save $27 a month. So we'll put that in there. And you just start line iteming out a projected dollar value of each. Is it, is it literally break down that to that level? It does. But again, it's more, and I think part of this, part of what's missing is the, is the first two meetings are free. So our, our onboarding costs are fairly high. We don't spend a lot on marketing and, you know, brochures and things like that. But we do spend a lot of time gathering data. Like it's turned out to be a weed out because it's just like, I'm not sending you all this stuff. But before we ever ask for that, we have a first conversation that is really designed to what brought you here and what does money mean to you? And have you worked with a financial advisor before? Really kind of understanding where they're at. Then the second meeting is more of a, okay, here's where you are financially. This is the trajectory that you're on. We see that you've saved a bonus of 77000 And then we start breaking that into, these are the areas of opportunities. This is what you're doing well. This is a blind spot, a big one. And so we're really just delivering this is the fee. This is what we anticipate the benefit being. So I get how you quantify some of these like refinancing a mortgage. That's a like a pretty straightforward dollar savings, maybe an in, in insurance coverage if if you know you you can help them replace a policy or adjust some deductibles or things like that. Like those those tend to have pretty direct 
dollar savings. Help me understand how this works in some other areas. Like, are you are you are you doing this on the investment side? Or are you doing it on the on the tax side? How do you quantify some things that aren't just a, an outright like here's your annual premium and we're going to save you this much on your premium? So let's since you mentioned investments, let's do that. So we screen all of the funds. We you know we screen basically this is what your investments cost from you know we're not necessarily looking at the transaction fees, but commissions, underlying fund cost, and then we compare that to how we would approach it for them. And let's say that their average or the fund cost for them by dollar amount is four thousand dollars, and the fund cost for us by dollar amount would be a thousand. That's $3,000 of benefit that we feel we can get them there because the portfolio is better and it's going to put money in their pocket. Now, they're not going to see it necessarily, but that it is that is an element of we're hiring you and that it would be an explanation for that particular client. And, and of course, Vanguard has, you know, their studies on, you know, the average, the perfect financial planners were 3% net fees. The first investment conversation I have with clients is we're going to invest this money and it's possible that it goes down 15%. And you're like, why the heck did we hire these knuckleheads? But that's the reality. That's a possibility that this this could happen. So let's set ourselves up. Let's move beyond the behavioral piece. And I'm an engineer type, so I tend to want to focus on the numbers, but also set the expectation. So it's probably more in the half a percent, 1% range in terms of tax loss harvesting, which really isn't showing up in your portfolio performance. It's showing up in your on your tax return. So is it a tax planning item or is it an investment item? But the fund costs are a big one and, you know, the rebalancing piece. So it's it's really basing it on, you know, where they are, where we want them to be. And because you live in a flat fee world, all this gets converted back to flat fees. So you the 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 client where I know plucking numbers out of the air, like you, they have a half million dollar portfolio, their portfolio's got a expense ratio of eighty basis points because they got a bunch of higher cost funds. You're gonna abuse a bunch of low cost things that cost twenty basis points. But you're you boil that straight down to dollars of Okay, on a five hundred thousand dollar portfolio, your expense ratios cost you four thousand dollars hard dollar cash. Ours costs one thousand dollars hard dollar cash. We're saving you a three thousand dollar delta. See, we've already we've already knocked out like a third of our annual fee with this three thousand dollar savings right here. So you're you're out of the basis points world and solely in the we're talking about it in dollars because we're quoting our fee in dollars. Yeah, and I tr- I try to stay in the present value. We do a lot of time value of money to make these determinations, but I try to stay in the present value because it's easier to explain, it's easier to understand. If I say I'm putting $10,000 back in your pocket and this is the 20-year equivalent, it's like you're not doing anything for me. <laughs> like, you know, this is 20 years from now. On the investment piece, the tricky part is it's very easy to say take every uh, take all of the lowest Vanguard fees you can find and let's push this as our process prospecting like this is what we're saving you. But in reality, you end up with four or five different actively managed funds with expense ratio of 1.19%. I'm not an active or passive person. I'm a persistence. And, you know, if you've got a track record over the appropriate time horizon, I'm in, but it's got to be substantiated. It's got to be persistent, you know, and a lot of times, as you know, it, it often isn't. There are some areas that are, but, you know, it, it can be difficult. If a small cap value fund in 2008 lost 32%, but index small cap value lost 38, no one wanted to lose 32% in 2008. But let's look at 
at it over 15 years. And maybe it's the index fund produced, you know, on a $10,000 investment, you know, $100,000 in compound fees. Like we're not really getting into that, but that is the premise of how we're making decisions on investment selection. And, you know, like if you think of retirement, the 4% rule versus say John Guyton's dynamic safe withdrawal policies. Like you're withdrawing more. Yes, there are some guardrails. There are some things that we have to be mindful of. But overall, you get to retire sooner, spend more, save less. And so it's really where are some of these variables coming in or where are you making the decision of how much to withdraw from your portfolio? And then you're going to try to come up with some present value calculation of the economic value of doing that well if it gets if it gets to the point of you know if we've got say an engineer type that's like you know can you send me the funds that you're using or you know yes we will present this okay here it is this is the supporting documentation but most people are not having that conversation i think that's to some degree it sets the stage for a lot of time for one client to answer all these questions or have to support but fundamentally, I believe we've got to substantiate what we're doing and say, you know, if a client says, what am I getting? What am I paying for? This is it. So when you create this to formulate it for a client, like a prospect you're, you're still approaching, is it literally a, just a, a proposal? I mean, I can imagine my head like a, a one pager that just says, you know, like here's, here's 11 line items of the things we're going to do for you. We're going to help you refinance your mortgage and we're going to do this Roth conversion and we're going to review your insurance policies and we're going to help you fix up some, some not so great stuff in your portfolio. Like, you know, I got my like 11 line items of the things I'm going to do in the parents' applying process. Each one has some dollar amount next to it. And then somewhere lower on the page, there's like just a total of that column. Here's here's all the dollar things we're going to do for you in the coming year. And hopefully it adds up to more than the $7,500 or whatever the, the client's fee is. Like, do you actually break it down to that level and presenting to them what the what the value is relative to the fee? Yeah, so we have, it's, I think it's about six pages. So it's a cover page with the client's name. Okay. It is basically an agenda. And our philosophy, like okay. this is why we do what we do. It is how we can help. So now we're getting into, you know, Virginia's stance on long-term care policies or Virginia's stance on 529 plan deductions, the benefit of an HSA through employer contributions via payroll rather than, you know, putting it in in April before you file your tax return. So there's, you know, two or three, four bullet points in each of the core areas of planning of which can blossom, but we're keeping it on one page. I don't want 60 pages of we're substantiating how we're going to help. Like they're not going to read it. Then we go into a roadmap of this is how we're going to help you. This is what we suggest that roadmap look like. We're going to tackle this in November. We're going to tackle this in January. We've actually got a deadline coming up for your employee benefits, it looks like. So we need to look at this first, but we're going to come back to it and get what we need now, but really focus in on this in March. And so that gives them kind of, you know, the, the overall timing of when we're going to tackle certain things. And then we take a much deeper dive into goals and expectations and what it's like to work with us. And if, you know, one of the things that I would say probably the hard way I have found that to really help a client, the best thing you can do is to tell them how we you're going to work with us from the beginning. And that's if you're uncomfortable with us getting in your wallet and pocketbook, we're not a good fit. And so we have some of those conversations, present the engagement agreement, go through any and questions that they have. So you you do get to a point of adding all these up. Like we have determined if you work with us, your estimated dollar savings is going to be $11,300. 
an hour fee is $8,000 and saving 11,300 is worth more than 8,000. So clearly that means you should work with us. Like, does it get to that level? Are you putting it down to an imprint to that level with them? It's more of a conversation. And these are the things that we're going, that we want to do to get you where you want to be. And I say, you know, even in a follow-up email, like our relationship is a partnership and there will be things that we believe you should do. And you may decide that you just don't want to do it. You don't want to refinance. You want to pay off your mortgage. Like, fine. But we're telling you the best way to get you where you want to be. But based on what we know under these things, these are the highlights. And here's some significant ways we feel we can help you. Actually, I'll I'll share this because I think this probably helps from a client perspective. So I'm reviewing a loan estimate for some for a client that's refinancing. And on the loan estimate, they're charging the new issue rate for a title insurance policy, which was like $2,200. And we had done so many refinances. I'm like, oh, the sniff test just says this, this seems high. So I shoot him a note and I said, hey, you know, I've reviewed it. Everything looks good. But I would ask about the refinance rate on the title insurance instead of the new issue rate. And sure enough, that was they had made a mistake. So now kind of coming back to the, the earlier conversation around the investment management side of things. So how does this like how does this fee structure work for you when it comes to their portfolios? You 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 frame this very heavily around just the time-based estimates of what it takes to do everything, whether it's a, a Roth conversion analysis or set up your retirement distributions or review your insurance or buy you a mattress. So is it the same framework on the on the investment end where I'm 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 gonna charge you something to manage your portfolio because it takes time and everything takes time and you guys rigorously measure time, but but it's going to purely be a time-based function. It's like, we're going to charge you if we have to rebalance your portfolio because I got to handle that account, but I'm going to charge you the same thing, whether it's a $100,000 account or a multi-million dollar account, because if it's one account to rebalance, I know how long it takes us and here's the fee to do it. Is it the same kind of approach for you on the on the investments end where it's, it's all just this time-based dynamic to estimate the scope and here's what the fee is going to be to include that as part of my service? So from your perspective, what would be the essential, just one example, something that would go into that recommendation? From a client's end, I'm going to have to do some analysis of what you've got. I'm going to make some recommendations about what you need. I'm going to have to implement some trades to sell X and buy Y. I may have to do some tax evaluation of the consequences of that, depending on on where those dollars are held. I'm may or may not do some asset location evaluation of where I'm going to hold that if you've got a broader portfolio. And all that's presuming we have the dollars with our platform. If not, I've got to do some account openings and transfers. All of that, everything that you just mentioned is what is a factor in the fee to manage investments. Okay. So investment policy, investment questionnaire, or conversation. You know, maybe it's not, hey, fill out this questionnaire that's somewhat meaningless because you're going to tell me today that the market's down, you don't like the market. The conversation to me that is better is what if we go on, we have a new relationship, we go to a cliff and we're going to do an exercise and I'm going to, you know, say, okay, I know we're new clients, but we're going to do an exercise and I'm going to, I want you to stand as close to the cliff as you're comfortable. (laughs) And husband says, all this, you know, garden stake of a dude isn't going to push me over the the cliff. And the woman says, I I don't care. It's cold. I'm going to sit back and just chill. That's actually a better indication of risk, not the questionnaire, but all of these things, whether it's the conversation, it's the investment policy, 
you have a taxable account. Well, there's some opportunity here with tax loss harvesting. Or we do have a few tiers of AUM like thresholds. Like if it's the, you know, you've got bond, total bond, total U.S., total international. But if we're starting to build, we need more diversification. Maybe there's a little bit of time. But what we're really doing is starting to push more into the account level, the account setup, the investment policy, the rebalancing. Is it one time? Is it two times? That's what's driving the fee. But a lot of that demands the technology stack is good enough that we're managing money and thinking through it as a percentage, not a dollar amount. I guess I'm just curious, like, what, what does this typically add up to in, in practice? Because I, I feel like you have a very unique perspective. Seriously, at the end of the day, how much does it take? How much time does it actually take to manage a client's investment account? Do you know offhand? I mean, just what does this portion of the fee typically add up to for clients of, your, of the firm? I mean, is this still the majority of a fee? Or is this a, like, no, actually, we use so much technology. This is basically like 500 bucks a year for a client. <laughs> what does it add up to in practice? Well, I can tell you from the team's perspective, some of these custodians, it is more time to set up the Dagon account than it is to manage the money that's in it. But, you know, Albert Einstein said, Compound interest is the most marvelous mathematical mm-hmm. tool in the universe. Investing, really, I mean, there are still clients that no matter what we deliver in insurance savings or tax savings or whatever, it's still what was my performance. Because we are, you know, in a world where financial planning is a synonym for investing. But when you really break it down, open an account for a client with $9 million, they probably have a slew of things going on. Like, I'm still just curious to know what this adds up to at the end of the day on the on the investment side of things. I mean, just like at, at the end of the day, you know, Andrew, I need a bunch of financial planning stuff and I have a million dollars to invest. Okay. You're going to do a bunch of things on the planning side and it's going to cost five or $6,000. You're going to manage my million dollar portfolio. When you do your time-based equation, how much of my fee is going to be your process to figure out how much it's going to cost to manage my investment account? $750. We already did the screen of your portfolio and we know what the costs are. And, and, you know, you could add that, well, that should be an add back because we did it. We just did it as a prospect, not a client, but we need to recoup that. Like some, sure, you, if, if that's the approach you want to go, like fine. But $750, we have got to open two accounts. We've got to do an investment policy statement. We've got to talk. We've got to have a conversation about how close you get to the cliff in this exercise. We've got to have you know, the conversation about it's possible that your portfolio goes down 15% and you're six months away from retirement. How is that going to feel? We've got to talk about the money you need today has got to be in cash. The money next year, think of it as a CD for one year. Yes, you get a little bit more interest, but in one year it's maturing and you've got it. So that's really where the time is spent. And is that truly typical? Like just a, a client at that size, like $750 is is the neighborhood of, of what it costs when you do your sort of project-based fee to figure out well, how much time is it actually going to take for us to do this? Yeah. I mean, it, it, and maybe less after we've implemented it because okay. we've done the investment policy. It's the rebalancing. And again, if the stack you're using for technology or the one software you're using allows you to do it and scale. Yep. Then, you know, I mean, how many sub-advisors or how many people right. now are charging 0.1 basis points for, well, 0.1750? It's, I mean, it, yeah. actually in this example is exactly the, the <laughs> it's exactly yeah. the same price, but. What I'm just, I'm, I'm struck with that, right? Like, as, as you said, you know, the, 
the fee in the aggregate might still add up to something close to 75 base point. Like it might be $7,500 for a, for a million dollar client, which is not, not dramatically different than others out there. And even though we talk about the proverbial 1% fee, a lot of advisors start putting in breakpoints and, and, you know, average revenue yield for advisory firms. If you just take all their fees and divide it into all of their assets, usually comes out in the 70 to 80 basis point range. So like you, when, you put the the discounting and the occasional big client, all this stuff in there. Like it, that's what it averages out to, which is almost exactly where you guys are. But just literally, mechanically, from a time based perspective, I'm struck that just you, you, the actual investment management portion of your fee ends up being basically ten percent of the fee, right? Seven hundred and fifty bucks out of seven seventy five hundred, and the other ninety percent is all the other financial planning stuff. Well, it's somewhat of an anomaly in your example because the fee could be twenty thousand, but that fee is still the same, right? So, it's- right. So, if, if I've got more planning complexity yeah. in a simpler investment realm, it would be smaller. And I suppose the other way, right? If the rest of my planning life is fairly straightforward, but I've managed to make a complete mess of my <laughs> investment accounts, and I have you know seventeen of them spread all over the place, and there's a whole bunch of stuff to dissect. I'm sure that that investment fee can add up more, at least particularly in the first year, since you've got a lot of cleanup to do. If I come with a messy situation, it's it's a fascinating example to me because for again for all the discussion around fee compression like you know the the total fees you charge for the total stuff you're doing is not that different than what most other advisory firms are at but the composition of how you get to that fee literally down to actually charging for the relative time looks completely different but i i'm not actually even sure that the time is all that different because we you know we did we did our Kitsis research study on advisor time and where advisor time goes. And the, the average advisor spends 10 to 15% of their time on investment-related stuff. Just if you look at like total hours in the week and how much yeah. time we typically spend, it, it comes out to be right around 10%. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm struck just even from that end. You know, a lot of us are charging the proverbial 1% fee when 90% of our fee is planning work and 10% is investment work. You're, you have a completely separate fee structure system, but it ultimately adds up to a similar fee and actually has a similar allocation of time. I just feel like you're, you're, you're just owning that a little bit more directly by getting to it from a project-based formula with the caveat that I presume like then when you get clients that have less investment need and more planning work, you get well compensated for that because you actually charge based on the planning work being done. And those of us who are in an investment-based world may get, may get disjointed. Right. Not 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 that the fees are necessarily lower. You average out the same as where other firms are, but your fees are probably much, much more consistently aligned to the amount of work that gets done for the client than the average advisor where it may average out. But we we end up much more wildly off because we get the the super simple client with three million dollars and the super complex client with three hundred thousand dollars. And we charge 10x for the million dollar client who is actually easier. You don't you don't have that problem because you you set the fees much more directly to the complexity. Yeah, well, the mattress lady, you know, has one account, but the mattress lady needed a mattress and had never made a financial decision in her life. So I don't want to be squeezed in the investment conversation. Frankly, I love it. I mean, how many people do you know that says, okay, I've got a 401k, I've got a Roth and a pre-tax. Well, I'll do 50-50. Like that may very well be a good idea, right? but generally there's a right or wrong answer. Like right. you're in the 37% tax bracket. You're going to be in the 15, maybe in retirement, but I don't think the investment conversation, like the value is so substantial because again, compound interest. Right. So we took all of the areas of planning and said, well, we're going to 
assign a percentage of what we're doing based on the value that it's going to contribute to your success in your financial plan. Investments is a big one, but when you add in investing, taxes, insurance savings, refinancing, right. it just compounds over, you know, be far beyond that. And we've got a lot more control and a lot more levers that we can say, hey, you don't want to take a lot of risk. No problem. We can do these tax planning strategies and we don't have to lean as much on those investments. So I think investing, you know, our portfolios aren't sexy. They're proven. I would love to rebrand all of our investment strategies just for context into why is this the blue blazer? Because it's good for all occasions. Like, <laughs> like that to me is would be sexy, but the strategy mm -hmm. itself is not. It's proven. Right, it right. works. Like I think of, you know, there's commercials out there. You know, we don't have cookie cutter portfolios for our clients. What's wrong with that? It's proven it works. Yeah. What else are you doing? Well, and when it's only 10% of your fee and it's primarily driven by the just raw actual administrative time to implement it anyways, and it may add up to less than 10 basis points, like you don't really need to do a lot to try to show more value there because it's not where you're driving your, it's not where you're driving your value. It's not where you're driving your fee. Yeah. So it's not where you're driving your value kind of frees you to focus more on the planning stuff. Yeah. And this is just the world that I have created for myself. You know, then there's the incredibly amazing, touching financial planning commercial for once. And you're like, wow, that was awesome. <laughs> like, I want to even go there as a client. Like, that was just such a powerful commercial. And then you watch the financial advisor giving the recommendations to the client, presumably in this case, and they're increasing college cost and the comfort score probability of success is going up. What software are you using? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like, I know it's just a commercial, but it's yeah. just like, that's how I think. And that there's a lot on the line here. Like if you've got $30 million and you're invested in a hedge fund, like you could afford to lose a few and you'll probably be okay. But everything that we do, if we're really doing it for the reason, for the reasons that we're doing it, it's like, it should count. It should not be overly cautious and conservative, but it should also be realistic. And that, you know, yes, you, you don't have to save a hundred thousand dollars if you make 200,000 and you can retire at 70 instead of waiting till 86. And then just remind me again. So how often are you coming back and actually revisiting to change the fee? It sounds like you will look every year at this at sort of the ongoing scope of services, but but may not change every year unless it's it's pretty material. So scope change, not always, but typically after year one, because there's a lot of time on year one. But really, the scope is moving more from conversations with clients to back office in year two and beyond. But let's say that, you know, we, we've made that shift and now you've been a client, ongoing client for five years, job change. That could be a scope change, buying a house, moving to a new city. That could be a scope change, divorce, getting married. That would be a scope change. So it's, it's those fairly significant, you know, you have a baby, now we're incorporating education planning, you know, or your baby, your child now has fully funded and you know, we're no longer confirming 529 plans hit the account, determining should you do it, should you not. So the scope has been reduced. I mean, I get it when, they, when they've when they got perspective changes, but I'm going to assume, you know, most of the time, or well, at least, at least some of the time, you're going to do your annual rescoping of the fee. And then four months later, they're going to find out that 
there's a job change. It's causing them to move to a new city. And it turns out their spouse doesn't want to go with them. They're getting divorced. So like didn't know in January when we talked about the annual fee that I was going to have a job change, new city and divorce. Now we do. You are my planner. I'm expecting help. So how do you deal with the mid-year life changes that happen? If it is a persistent change, like this is now part of the planning, then we would we would amend the ongoing agreement. Okay. Versus if it's I'm divorcing, that is an immediate call. This is a scope change. I'm so sorry. Like this has got to be really difficult. We're going to schedule a meeting right away so that you know we're here. And I guess I just got to ask, because you had said at the beginning in the civil engineering world, everybody does the, the timing and 15 minute increments and it, it kind of drives them nuts, but you do it anyways because that's how it's done. Like does this level time does this time level focus drive you nuts? Where you are now, like, is it is it still the same challenge? Does it feel different when you're doing it as an advisor? How do you handle the time focus? To be honest, explaining it is what's nerve wracking. And I'm not saying you in this conversation. Right, right. But it's funny. I've approached it from the beginning this way. I didn't really know how it would take shape until it did. It makes sense to clients. Like, right. They say this makes sense. Like if my if if I get a hair color or perm and a eyebrow wax, like okay, this this makes sense. Thank you. It's the people in our industry, you know, one very influential person and friend, and I could see myself carrying the casket type of thing. Said this is not going to work. It is not going to work. Like I, I joke with one particular team member, like you do you. I'll do me <laughs> like keep doing what you're doing. If it's working, like I'm not criticizing, like the thing that I would criticize is the client not knowing what they're paying. So what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? My head just exploded because um, <laughs> there were a lot of surprises. And I think the whole premise of this podcast is just brilliant because, you know, it's, this award, that award, like, oh, they must be doing things so well. I wish someone had shared that this would not be a Hollywood movie with a thumping soundtrack and special effects. Like, it's not always going to create those warm and fuzzies. If that's what you're looking for, great. But I would say save yourself some time and go watch a Rocky movie. For me, it was, you know, purchasing a firm, you know, as I said, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer within two two years of closing. Here I'm trying to, you know, get to know clients and my best friend, my mentor, my dad, you know, the source of all solutions to some degree. I, I love building things and surfing. And so that was shattering. I'm not one to be confrontational like Again, you do you, I'll do me. Like I'm more of a, I'm just going to crush work. That's my mojo is my work ethic, but you get what you tolerate, you know, whether it's a client there, you know, or it's a team member. I think that was to some degree a rude awakening because, you know, when I was in engineering, I never was managing, you know, people or I had no real experience. I was a design engineer or technician where I'm giving something to someone, I'm getting feedback of, Hey, you, you know, you're really good, but you're working really fast. You know, so it, it was never, I was never in a management position. That was an interesting 
challenging at times transition. I'm big on let my work speak for itself. And Dale Carnegie said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Your character Mm -hmm. is who you are. Your reputation is just what others think of you. You can't ignore both. Like you can't just do something for the sake of your reputation, but you also need to worry about your reputation. Like if Michael Kitsis posts, you know, a, something on the top of, you know, a banner on the top of his website, Oleo sucks. Like <laughs> we may not get to hire anyone. Like, it, you know, I mean, I think you've got to consider it. And I never would have thought hiring decisions could be the single most important factor in putting your client's interest first. And I expect a lot of this team. It's, you know, good work. The stories that we had, you know, a guy who was a prospect, had no umbrella insurance. And I was like, for some reason, you know, stars aligned or whatever, we need to get you an umbrella policy. And I guess that's why people say don't ignore your intuition. We Mm -hmm. did. Six months later, his daughter puts the pencil underneath her best friend's seat. She sits on it. And now he's making a claim on the umbrella policy. It is so rare that that happens, but we've got to, it will. And to me, early on, it was, you're a great person. You've got good character. You, you know, show up presentable. Our application process, thanks to two wonderful women on our team, has completely been revamped to dive into that. Like, because I think it's so important that we know to the extent that we can, you know, everyone to some degree is on their best behavior until they're not. But to the extent that we can from content to interviews to testing to, you know, the how to fascinate assessment is probably one of the few that I have been spot on. Like if you read my assessment, it is like holy smokes. And that actually is true for a lot of people on the team. So just the experience and building it out, I was a big believer. You've got to look at where you want to go first, and then you got to go there. Those were areas where I I was surprised that I I should have done that, that that early on. Because, you know, I'm thinking it's going to work or it's not. If there's an employee, then great. But I'm not building out, you know, HR employment agreements and things like that. But those were all, you know, areas that I was surprised and probably naive. So anything you wish you'd done substantively differently? Like anything you know now you wish you could go back and tell you from five or six years ago when you were launching Oleo? Yes, there are. Fundamentally, no. But in terms of expectations, work hard and smart, not one or the other. Where I come from, you earn your high fives. And I think the residency program is one of the best strategic decisions that we've ever made. Meaning having residents and and financial advisors in your firm. Right. I mean, that's a high five to John Guyton and Andrea Eaton at Cornerstone. Olio is just a recipient of their great work and the experience that Christine D'Amico and Amanda Ansel had, who are both leading that. I have a few rules. Show up, work hard, be resourceful and listen, whether that's team members, it's clients. You know, we bust our tails for our clients in every way possible but I expect the team to do the same for them. And, you know, starting was all about clients and what they needed. I have to admit it was more, you're here to serve our clients. Now it's, they are here to serve just as I am, but it is a little bit different because I do want them to succeed. 
And I want this to be a result or a professional relationship that we're all proud of. And I don't want to just get to the top. I want us to stay there. I want us to still keep creating. You know, the flat fee is just one piece of what we're doing. But going into this, I had no clue what to look for. I just knew I wanted to make an impact and I might need a team. But intelligence is important. Talent is important. Your competitive drive is important. Being able to fail is important, but also being resilient. I knew none of that coming in. And so those would be the things that I would change. It's not that I'm changed. It's just the awareness and maybe the self-work, if you will. I think it was Joe Duran maybe said that, you know, at least the good financial advisors have raging insecurities. Yeah. Like that's a man that's growing beyond his asset base. Like he's recognizing that we all go through stuff like fundamentally. and, And it's just, you aren't necessarily approaching that conversation until you're right there in it. Right. And it's really hard to look back and say, well, this is what I would change because I didn't know. But now knowing what I knew, if as I guess as they call it in golf, you get a mulligan, you go back. Yeah, for sure. Like, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Like, you're going to work hard. This is not going to be for everyone, but it is going to be extraordinary. And you may decide to leave. That's okay. But you might decide to take something that you found tremendous in your experience and it propels you to great things. So any other tips you would give for newer advisors coming into the industry today and getting started from here? I would say be very mindful of the extinction to some degree of the travel agency business. I think we're flirting with that. If technology can do what we do, which I'm not saying that it can, But a lot of the industry, you know, if we see this massive shift of these retiring advisors, I think you had noted it's like a third of advisors are approaching retirement. It'll be a very interesting transition. I'm excited to see where the industry is going. I think we're moving in the right direction. Steve Martin once said, be so good they can't ignore you. Like look for something more than a fee-only RIA charging 1% of AUM, putting clients' interest first and suggesting that financial planning is what they do, but it's really just investment management. Your first job could set the stage for your entire career. And to me, that is one of the reasons I was in the camp with the residency program. Christine and Amanda, they like it's it's been great. But I was in the camp of we're really going to pay these people for three years, train them for them to leave and go benefit another firm. Yes, we are. If we really set out to push this industry, not only can we create the client experience that we want, but we can help create the client experience that other advisors could get a a tidbit from a resident. Like, yes, let's do it. And I would say create your own pressure to succeed. You know, don't let others create it for you. I think of stress to some degree as a privilege. And what we do is stressful. I mean, whether it's a money movement or, you know, the market's down or tax, you forgot to make a tax payment. But if you want to set the world on fire, you better know how to put it out. And it takes those types of situations. And being unique and different sometimes just takes pursuing what you believe and what you want to do and sharing it. And if you're at a place, they say no one cares about saving for college or 529 plan contribution. But you really believe, because you had to pay for all of your education yourself, you really believe that this is meaningful. Come work at Olio. That to me is someone who has passion, who understands the benefit. And yes, there are places like that for you to shine and do what you want to do. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And it's one of the themes that always comes up is even the word success means different things to different people. 
And so as you're on this wonderful track with the growth of the firm and, and 275 million, 275 clients and a, a model that your colleagues said wasn't going to work, here you are growing along. So the business is, is certainly growing successfully. But I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I think in the work that we do, you know, what if there was a technology that continued the client experience far beyond the delivery of a financial plan and monitoring that plan? Or simply put, measured your heart rate as you're about to make a large financial decision and presented you with the opportunity cost of doing so. It doesn't mean it's the wrong decision. It just gives you the information so you know its impact. Like to me, that is amazing. Like I have a story, Mr. Goodbar and a Coke and if you go back, I went to a you know convenience store two days a week from the time I was five until 12. That was when I stopped going to the babysitter. And Monday through Friday, we would stop by a convenience store called Bucko's Pantry, and I would buy Mr. Goodbar and a Coke. And when I got into this industry, I thought, well, I have a money script. Evidently, everyone does. So what would be mine? And this was just one example of that $2 a day 50 weeks a year because we inevitably went on vacation or I wasn't at the sitter. Maybe I was sick. What would that mean to me if that money was set aside from five till 12 at 18? 12 contributions stopped 18. I was aware now that this was created, but it was for my retirement. We're on track for 1.5 plus million, just at two bucks a day. And I think I don't want to micromanage the types of decisions that you're making day to day, but just the information of knowing Like that to me is incredibly impactful. But I think to me in my role is more strategic thinking. It's ensuring client relationships are transitioned, but they feel that they're not passed off. Like I think that's been a challenge is, you know, to grow, you've got to think strategically. You've got to focus on processes and procedures and new things. And it's hard to meet with a client every single day three clients a day and have the time to do it, but also not sacrifice other things. Financial planning has been my career, my hobby, my significant other at times. I think, you know, success to me would be the type of work I'm doing within a normal work-like schedule would be similar to those things. You know, I'm able to surf a lot more. Some of my best ideas come sitting on a surfboard just past the break. And I'm the type of person that looks at a blank piece of paper and wants to start creating. And so having that time, but knowing that clients are still in a really good place and maybe even a better place because our, our team is that stellar. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.